All right, we are finishing up our series in uh, Advent in the book of John. And so I just want to remind us before we get into a story that I think we're uh, probably fairly familiar with. And, and always remember that when you're familiar with something, you can miss a lot of the details. Or you can forget what the story really is about. And so we really want to make sure that we take some time to, to notice some things in this story to help us understand what it is that's going on. Um, was Jenny making some kind of shadow puppet situation. We don't, we don't do puppets here at Christ Community. Uh, and so, uh, for lots of reasons. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we are, we are rightly understanding what it is that John's trying to communicate to us. So remember this, that, that in the beginning of John, that prologue, verses 1 through 18, uh, John is saying that Jesus is the word or the logos made flesh. And what that means is, is that he's always revealing the character of God. So it becomes very important that we have some knowledge of what is God's character and what is it that Jesus is revealing. So for those of you, as you study the book of John, if you have the opportunity, make sure that you are always thinking through how each story reveals some aspect of the character of God. If you don't do that, you miss uh, the major points. And what you'll notice if you read the book of John is Jesus is always pointing away from himself and saying, don't, don't look at me. This is not about me. This is about how I reveal the glory of God. Always look past me to God. And this is an important thing for us, as I think that sometimes we as Christians can be, and this is going to be a provocative statement, uh, trigger warning, um, we can be overly Christocentric. How in the world can you be overly Christocentric? Well, what we do sometimes is forget that we are being saved to God instead of being saved from him. And sometimes we forget that it is God who sent Jesus to reveal himself and reveal his love for us. So it's not as if Jesus stepped in and said, Dad, I know you're mad, and I know they stink, and I know they're awful. They're, they're filthy, dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. I think I can fix it if you just give me a chance. No, that's not at all what happened. In fact, from the very beginning, and that's one of the reasons that we looked at the Gospel of John is so that we understand that the redemptive story is not plan B. It was from the very beginning. It was always intended. Uh, and so that's in incredibly important for us to always keep in mind. So as we look at this story, what we want to be doing is looking for how Jesus is revealing something of the, the person and attributes of God himself. That's very important in what it is he's pointing to. And so uh, as we do that, let's pick up in, and in, in, before we pick up actually in John 2, I want to read to you Amos 9, 11 through 15, because one of the things that's very important is there are, there are symbols all throughout scripture that repeat and are very important. And wine is one of those. So for those of you who are kind of wicked like I am and you're thinking, well, then why don't we do wine at Christ's community? Uh, I don't disagree with you. Uh, it's just been hard. It's harder to keep. There's a lot of reasons, but um, uh, maybe when we have our own building someday, if you'll write a check for $2 million, we'll do wine from here forward. Uh, and so, uh, but other than that, we're going to go with grape juice for now. So, uh, so I, I get it. So, but wine is a very, very important symbol in scripture that is not intended to, to, to be disembodied. It's not just a, a spiritual connotation. It's actual wine. Um, and so it's very important that when you see these kind of symbols, wine and food, that you understand what they're pointing to. So if you would give your attention to the reading of Amos 9, 11 through 15, so that we understand for some of those people who are watching this miracle at the wedding at Cana, 
it would have signaled something very deep and important to them. Uh, and, and so, hear God's word. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David, David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when plowmen shall overtake the reaper and treader of grapes who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them. So one of the things about this new wine that would have signaled to those who knew anything about prophecy and scripture is that the days of redemption were unfolding. That the one who would rebuild all things and make all things new was in fact here. And that they would actually be participating in that rebuilding. Don't miss that. So often I think we miss where God is saying, I'm inviting you into this wonderful, redemptive, reconciliatory work. We're so gifted at deconstruction and cynicism. I am so gifted at deconstruction and cynicism that I fail at times to be a good ambassador of reconciliation. And so that's what this new one signals is that everything you need to become ambassadors of reconciliation is here. And so we want to pay attention to that as we look at the miracle at the wedding at Canaan. But one thing I want to ask you before we get into that is what future events are you looking forward to? Right? I mean, we're, we're, we're an interesting culture in terms of time. Um, you do know that the, the, the whole idea of the new year and all that kind of stuff, that's really arbitrary. Um, we kind of made that stuff up. And so, but, but we love it, don't we? We love the idea of a clean slate. Many of you are thinking, man, I've got one day left on a ruined year or one day left on not so hot of a year and I can't wait for tomorrow as if some, somehow the flipping of the calendar all of a sudden grants you some sort of clean slate and it's not all connected somehow, Right? And so what are you looking forward to in, in, in 2018? Uh, for some of you, it's a new head coach. Uh, for some of you, some of you, uh, for, for some of you, it, it's, it's maybe a new job. For some of you, you'll be graduating and trying to think about what's next. For some of you, it's a trip that you have planned. For some of you, it's any number of things that are very important to you. Um, and so, <coughs> excuse me, someone is providing water. You're good people. That's biblical, actually, to provide water. Um, and so some of you have things that you're, you're looking forward to. Some of you have things you're not looking forward to, things that you know are coming um, that you're, you're going to have to deal with, and they kind of cloud the horizon. Um, and so that is having an impact on you. But why? Why, why do these things uh, stand out in the way that they do? And I think it's important for us to think those kind of things through um, and, and how Christ has an impact on that, and we'll get into that a little bit more in the sermon. But, but be thinking about that. What are you looking forward to and why? And why do you think it's going to make that big of a difference, actually? I, can't, I, I remember one time <laughs> I uh, needed a third job or something, and uh, a, a job opening came at UPS. 
So for those of you who don't know that, they, you move boxes, right? And so at that time, back in the day, minimum wage was like four twenty-five. I remember when it went to like four thirty-five. I thought, we're going to be rich. I don't know if you know about 10 cents an hour. It doesn't really make you rich, actually. Um, but UPS paid eight bucks an hour. That was like twice minimum wage. This was going to transform my life, right? And I was so excited, and I got the job, and it was twilight shift. And if you know anything about UPS, twilight is like, if I remember right, it's like 1 a.m. to 5. It's a four-hour shift, 8 bucks times 4. I don't know if you're doing the math, 32 bucks. I was spending like 10 bucks in gas. It just it didn't transform my life, as it turned out, in a positive way. And it was terrible. It was a terrible job. Uh, and uh, and I, had a, I had a terrible boss to start with and then a better boss a little bit later on who loved wrestling. We connected on that level. That tells you something. Uh, and so, but, but it was so funny because I had such, I just, I remember I, I, telling everybody I knew, my life is about to be radically transformed by this $8 an hour job. And it wasn't. I remember thinking if I could just get into physical therapy school, my life is going to be transformed. And it was. I tried to quit about halfway in, and then they tried to kick me out a little further in, and then I became a Christian. And so it kind of worked out in the, on the whole of things. Um, but it didn't, it didn't provide what I thought it was going to. And I, and I remember thinking uh, back, back when I was single, if I could just find, if I could just, just find a, somebody, it'd make my life so different. And it did many times over um, and, uh, and almost destroyed me many times over. Uh, and, and, I, and I won't say I got lucky because I'm Presbyterian, but in the sovereignty of God, uh, met Susan, who uh, has been just such a huge blessing. But uh, I, bring, I still bear so many scars from trying so many times, thinking that all of these earthly things can make some sort of profound difference. Right? And that's what we do. We look forward to things thinking that the earthly is going to make some sort of profound difference as if it's going to change everything. And oftentimes it does, but rarely in the way that we would love for it to be sustainable long into eternity in the future. Only one thing changes everything, and that's Christ. Only one thing makes it possible for us to actually have anything close to what we assume to be a clean slate so that we can be creative and so that failure doesn't have the final say, and that is Christ and Christ alone. Only one thing. And so, as, as you're thinking about that, let's turn to the text, John 2, 1 through 12. If you would hear again the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. 
This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, we want to make a few observations along the way, and I want to encourage you to do this in your own scripture reading. Pay attention to what's going on and start from the beginning of of the story. Now, what's important about him saying on the third day? Now, I wouldn't die on a hill on this or start a new religion based on this, but um, if you're doing the math, if you've read what has come before, on the third day would actually be the first day of the week. This would be seven days from the start of John the Baptist's ministry. And so why is that important? What's the first day of the week in the Jewish Sunday? And so, but on the third day also has implications because on what day did Jesus rise from the dead? He rose on the third day, which happened to be Sunday. And so there's something to that because you got to remember, John's not writing this as a reporter who's writing it as it's unfolding. He has lived it out and is now writing, reflecting upon what went down. And so these details, I don't think, are incidental. To us, And so what I think we have here is a declaration of resurrection in, in some ways, pointing forward to what will come. So on the third day, uh, they're at a wedding at Cana. Now notice that the, the, actually the main character of the story, in some respects, as it begins, is really Mary. She's the one who obviously has some connection to the people who are getting married because it goes on to say, and Jesus was also, had also been invited with his disciples. So it wasn't that he had a firm relationship with the family. It was really Mary. Because why would Mary have any concern whatsoever with the fact or know that they had run out of wine? You may be thinking, well, maybe it's because she was a lush and she was looking for the good stuff. No, that's not why it was. And why would she care? Well, it's very important to kind of understand the social aspects of weddings in their day. For a community in their day, a wedding was an incredibly important event because it signaled another strong building block for the entire community. Their communities could not survive without uh, marriage and family and children. Does this sound familiar at all? Uh, Most communities can't survive. No community really survives without these things. But for them, they had a rich understanding, and a wedding was a communal event. Now, today, we're always trimming our list, right? You're like, I don't know, we ain't ain't got so many chicken wings. You invite Cameron, we know about how that's going to go. And so so we're always trimming the list, whereas they were looking to include more and more people. It was a huge communal event, which if you run out of wine, which is a staple in their day, that was a significant social faux pas, right? It would have been been, uh, significantly embarrassing to the bride and the groom and and the the families who had thrown the wedding. And so Mary comes to Jesus concerned about the bridegroom and the families. And Jesus has an interesting response, which I think we struggle to understand in our language. I think we read it almost as rednecks. Woman, what's this got to do with me? And that's not, that's actually not how it's to be read. Um, it's a more, it's a, he's, it's actually a gentler, it's a gentler phrase that's translated as woman. He, he actually, it's the same phrase that he uses as he speaks to his mother from the cross. And so what he's saying to her in essence is I am not a wonder working sideshow. 
I have not come to draw attention to me. I've not come to, to just, just do things at someone's behest. This isn't about me. And when he says my hour has not yet come, what hour is he referring to? Well, that commonly is the hour of his death. And so he knows with every, everything he does to reveal the glory of God, he draws closer to the cross. Because people will either try to turn him into a wonder-working sideshow, which they're going to get mad at him because he doesn't seem to work well as a cosmic candy machine, which is important for you to know. Because for many of you, your disappointment with Jesus is because he's not doing what you want him to do. And he is not doing what you want him to do for your glory. Always remember that Jesus does what he does. The prayers that he answers, which, let me say this, he answers them all. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's maybe. Sometimes it's wait. But the answer that he gives is always, always the answer that will bring the greatest glory to God the Father. And so often, we don't pray with that in mind. Think about even the Lord's Prayer. What's the first line? Quick test on who's a Christian in here. Uh, What's the first line of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, keep reading, hallowed be thy name. The the, the, The first concern that every single one of our prayers ought to have is whether or not what we are praying for is in any way consonant or connected to the glory of God. So much of our disappointment is we aren't concerned with the glory of God. We are only concerned with our own way and our own way of doing things and what's going to bring us glory so often. And that's something that, uh, like him, he's not, he don't care about the glory of God right now. Um, and so, so we're very, we can be very self-focused, right? We think we are the center of the universe. And so, so often, Jesus is actually pushing against that for our greater good, and that sometimes hurts. Um, it, it sometimes hurts to discover that uh, we, are, we are still wretchedly selfish, I'm deeply convicted by this as a pastor because, again, think about, um, think about how often, what's, what's, what's the measure of, of the health of a church? Nickels and noses, right? And we all try to do the whole, like, um, you know, I don't care about numbers. But let it get down to 20 in here. I don't mean degrees. That's out front where I was standing earlier. Um, <laughs> let, let, let the money dry up to about five bucks a week and see if I don't get concerned. So at the end of the day, we, it's still a measure, isn't it? And again, I, I, I'd love it to be that I only, the only thing I cared about, only thing I cared about was whether or not you were growing spiritually. Right? But so often it gets entangled. I, I, I'm concerned with um, comments that are made about sermons. I'm concerned with comments that are made about uh, any number of things, Right? And so often, that, that's us too. That's not about the glory of God. And so I'm, I'm deeply convicted by so often that my own functioning as pastor is not about the glory of God. It's really about the glory of Cameron. And I've put some people on retainer that if, if www.camerondbarham.com ever shows up, that will black bag me and beat me with a big stick until I have it removed. Um, but it's more subtle than that, isn't it? And so here Jesus is saying to her, I am not, I'm not here to just do parlor tricks. 
Everything I do, everything I do needs to bring glory to God. And what's interesting is Mary's understanding of how even this could do that. Notice what she does. She turns to the servants. And again, this is an indication that she must have been known by these folks pretty well. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And then notice what he does do. Everything matters. He chooses not, not the barrels that the wine had already come in, which he could have done, by the way, right? Um, but what he chooses instead are these empty pots that were used for purification, which has an analog for us to baptism or the setting apart of things, right? Or the cleansing of things. And so he says to the servants, which is beautiful because he includes them in this miracle. He says, fill it up to the, to the top with water. And they do, as he has said. And he says, now take some to the master of ceremonies. Now pay close attention. Who all knows that Jesus made this wine? Only two groups of people, the servants and the disciples. He doesn't make a big show of it. In fact, who gets the credit for breaking out the good wine? The bridegroom does. Because the master of ceremonies would have kind of been, I guess the best analog we have is like a wedding planner of sorts, right? The person who runs around with a clipboard and, and tries to keep at order and tries to keep people from letting you eat the, the dessert first and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and so, and so, so this person was, was just blown away and the bridegroom gets the credit. The family gets the credit. Now, what does that tell us about the character of God? Well, this is really important because I think many of us think that what God is most in the business of doing is pointing out our mistakes. That, that really what God likes to do is say, hey, I just want to, I, I don't know if you know how screwed up you really are, but I just want to point out yet another year has gone by and you haven't read through the Bible. Uh, I just want to point out another year has gone by and all you're still, you're, you're still, you 10 pounds heavier, or yet another year's gone by and, and you, you've yet to do any of the things you promised you would do. That God is just in the business of just, he just loves poking us in the eye, right? We sometimes think that about him. But this, what this says about the character of God is that he is in the business of covering our sin and our shame. And that he is in the business of actually glorifying us something that I think that, that we don't get, right? Remember, he's going to sing praise songs over us. There is glory that we will get in the resurrection. Um, and we're going to read from Revelation 19 about the marriage supper of the Lamb. We do beautify the, the bride with the, the, the things that we do between the now and the not yet. How you live your life matters. And so what Jesus is doing here is saying, I'm not drawing attention to me. Let it be to the bridegroom. I will cover this social faux pas, this mistake, and let them take the credit for it. And yet, the people who saw and knew that it was Jesus, notice what it says about the disciples. It says, and his disciples believed in him. Because they were witnessing Amos 9 beginning to trickle down the mountains. The new wine was beginning to flow. And this wasn't just a miracle, it was a sign, and a sign always points to something further. So what this, this situation at Cana points forward to 
is that our God saves the best always for last. Now, why is that important to us? Think about situations that you've been in that were really difficult, but you knew something good was at the end. How did that help you endure the difficult situation? You can make it, right? If you know there's a good end, then, and you know that there's going to be some reward out of it all, you can endure, right? And when it's, it's when it gets full-on Ecclesiastes and it's just like cyclical and vanity of vanities, we begin to despair and kind of lose our minds and need medication and all this kind of stuff, right? We, we start to kind of come unglued. But, but knowing that there is something better at the end affords us the ability to live in such a way that there's no need for a clean slate because there's no slate. There's no need for New Year and New Year's resolutions because it's all one long tapestry. And that which has been um, intended for evil, God will use for good. The mistakes that you have made, he will put into the grist mill of transforming and sanctifying you. It all matters and it's all usable in the hands of our creator God. And so... With this new one, it also says that we get to be involved in this redemptive, reconciliatory process. One of the things that I find that probably most Christians struggle with is purpose. You're just not involved in anything. You're not actually using your gifts very much, or even probably more common is what you're doing you don't see with redeemed eyes. You don't understand how your vocation or what you're doing actually matters. It's not that many of you need to add anything to your lives. It's you need to change the perspective of how you understand what you're doing. It needs to have a a deeper purposefulness that, that rises out of redemption. Instead of you always being reactive, you actually become redemptively proactive. And so it's it's not that we need to add very much. It's we need to see a fresh and a new through the person and work of Christ, through the, the, the good attributes of, of the Lord our God who redeems all things, who's made all, who will make all things new and is actually in the process of doing that as we go along. It's not just, a, it's not just a, something fully for the end. We, we get to be participants now. And what a beautiful thing to be able to live in such a way that failure doesn't, we, think about how creative you can be when failure does not dictate you. It doesn't determine you. It doesn't decide you. Think about how free you can actually be when you know that God knows every ounce of who you are, the darkest corner of your soul, and yet he loves you. So what does it matter what you know about me? And think about how free we can be to actually love our neighbors well. Think about how, how the parties we throw ought to have a deeper meaning and better wine. Think about how what we do ought to always point forward to the goodness of God and be purposeful. And you may be thinking, man, that sounds exhausting. Well, are you not exhausted with what you're doing? What if it all had meaning? What if it all had purpose? What if all of the minutes were redeemed and all of the days counted as they do in the economy of redemption? And so here we see Jesus not drawing attention to himself, not making, not, not billing himself as some wonder-working sideshow, but instead saying, I care about the fact that the bridegroom and the bride and their families will be thought less of. I care about these people who we don't even know their names. 
And I also care about that you all know that redemption has come and it is unfolding and that the day that Amos said would come, the booth of David has been rebuilt in me. The word become flesh. You all will now become participants in regeneration and redemption. What a beautiful and amazing thing this is that's unfolding. And it points forward to something so beautiful promised in Isaiah 25. If you don't know Isaiah 25, 6 through 9, yet another verse you should probably memorize. But it says, on this mountain, death will be swallowed up in life. And you will dine on the finest of wines and eat the richest of meat. A very embodied existence. This is something tangible. This is not just spiritual. It is of the things that we love. And he makes it very clear that he is the one who will do that. And, and, and Isaiah goes on to say, this is our God. This is the God for whom we have waited. So this is what Jesus is pointing to in this very subtle, very Isaiah 53 type way. Not, not drawing a bunch of attention to himself. And yet, like leaven, it's percolating and beginning to move throughout. Listen to what Frederick Dale Bruner says about this passage. He says, Jesus' changing water into wine shows the church how the Messianic Lord transforms the ancient people's purifying waters into the new people's vivifying wine. I love that. Uh, vivifying wine. That just makes brighter, makes stronger, makes more meaningful. How he changes the ordinary and its failures into the extraordinary and its abundance. As Jesus' first public sign, the miracle wants to show the church the qualitative change Jesus brings into history and personal life. This means that it changes things actually. So Christian, or you who think you're a Christian, if your life is not is not, has not been qualitatively changed, if you can't point to anything that's actually different about how you live, you should not get nervous, but press into that and cry out to the Lord and call for qualitative change, change that's tangible. Christianity is not intended to be an, a super added kind of thing to our lives. It is to be transformative. And I know, I know that with all of the things that we have going on and feeling like we're caught in a swiftly flowing stream with, especially if you have kids or if you're trying to graduate from school or you're trying to find a job, everything feels like it's just swiftly moving along. This is the beauty of Christ. Is it actually brings Sabbath. He brings rest. He brings completeness to those things because as somebody who's lived a little bit and raised a couple of kids and was someday be a grandfather soon, uh, and owns a house and is fighting English ivy and losing. Uh, I don't, uh, it's just killing me. Uh, um, uh, I can tell you the stream never stops flowing. There's, n- there's not a place, a transition-wise, you're going to get to where it all gets easier. Now, lest you despair, this is where Christ has transformed the stream. Instead of it being Waters that will drown you and sweep you away. Instead, it's become living water. And so the thing I would like for you to reflect on is, what are you most ashamed of or frustrated with from this past year? Now, I know you're you're thinking, I don't want to think about that today. i got a clean slate coming tomorrow, bro. What are you messing with the slate for? I don't like thinking about those kind of things, but you do. 
You do, don't you? And you can either think about them as one who is haunted by them or as one who recognizes they don't have the final say. You can think about them as one who prays them and puts them at the foot of the cross where they belong, nailed to it, to no longer dictate and decide you. Or you can leave it to the dark of the night for it to bubble up to the surface and overtake you. So I would posit that we need to be active in actually saying and thinking about uh, our failures and, and actually taking and giving thanks that they do two things. They teach us that we are not God, but they also teach us that God is a redeeming God and a loving God. And so how will those failures from this past year, those frustrations from this past year dictate your next year? How's it already beginning to shape up 2018 for you? And then even better, what's worth celebrating from this past year? what's, What's good that God has done or that you've seen happen? And uh, what are you most looking forward to in this coming year? But most important is how has or does who you are in Christ affect each of these things? Because if you look without the lens of Christ at your failures, they will overwhelm you. And if you look forward without the intentionality of Christ, you will be disappointed. And so it's important that Christ becomes uh, for us the word made flesh in time. Lord of time, Lord of days, Lord of all of these things. Uh, And recognizing that God does long to cover our mistakes, that death will be swallowed up in life. And that you and the resurrection are not going to be defined by any of this stuff. But what's most important is whether or not you will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so what do we learn from John 2, 1 through 12? It just teaches us that Jesus is the divine Messiah who comes to restore us to God and make all things new. I say just, it just teaches us that, right? I mean, as if it's just a simple thing, divine Messiah, making all things new. But those are things worthy of our meditation and celebration. And listen to what we have coming at Revelation 19, 6 through 9. And this is, again, this is John who wrote this gospel. He sees these things as well. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. How does wine figure into this? Well, if you remember when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, what did he say about wine? He says, I will not drink this again until I am with you again in the new heavens and new earth in essence. So it will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb that the finest of wine will be broken out for us. And so it is is then that we will know in full how good our God is.